For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is God's word. All right. Thank you very much, Danny. That was great. Um, Let us pray before we jump into it. (sighs) Dear Lord, um, God, we thank you for the opportunity to come to you again on this day, on your day. Um, Yeah, it's a great blessing, great privilege. I pray that you would be with each of us during this time, just just speaking um, exactly what we need to hear, just ministering to us in whatever state we have come to you in. Um, help the words to be clear. Help the message to be clear. I pray, Father, that I myself would decline, just uh, that you might um, just increase, that I would just not be an obstacle but I would just be a uh, trustworthy vessel to your word spoken to your people. Um, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, here we go, team. So as we um, has already kind of discussed, we're going through, um, for most of 2021, we're gonna be going through the book of Galatians, um, which is a book of the New Testament. It is an epistle, which is really just an old-timey word for it was a letter. It was a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who was one of the most significant figures of the like very, very, very early church. And his letter was written to these churches in the, in the region of Galatia, where he was essentially addressing a lot of problematic things that were going on there. And so what I want to do, uh, kind of the structure of my little, my little sermon here today, is I, I want to give a lot of summary and a lot of background, um, just so that we're all kind of in the same place when we're looking at these passages or this, this specific passage that Danny read for us. Um, And then we're going to kind of go into like more meat and potatoes-esque application. So kind of, kind of bear with me in that. I hope it doesn't get too, uh, too disjointed. One second. Okay. So again, um, the book of Galatians was a letter written by the apostle Paul. And I mentioned the word apostle. That's actually going to become really important as I kind of explain these things in more detail. But it was a letter written by the apostle Paul to the churches in Galatia. And the primary purpose that we're going to see throughout all six chapters of this book is that they're kind of addressing one big area that the churches in this in this place had kind of like deviated a little bit from the gospel. And it was deviating in significant ways that Paul felt the need to address. Easiest way to kind of explain that is what was happening was the Jewish church leaders in Galatia were commanding that the non-Jewish Gentiles, another word for them, Christians, needed to live by the ritual commands that were given to Israel in the Old Testament All of that primarily meaning that if you weren't Jewish and you came to faith in Jesus, you needed to get circumcised, which is a very, very unfortunate heresy to have. Um, The problem with this teaching 
as Paul will uh, continue to explain more and more throughout this book, and that that we will uh, explain more and more in future sermons throughout the year, is that it showed a pretty fundamental misunderstanding of what Jesus' death accomplished, in that he had completed the works of this law that the people of Galatia, their teachings were still kind of enslaved to, still kind of dependent on, and that they were requiring circumcision and other ways of adhering to the law. And so by forcing non-Jewish Christians who had never been circumcised because that wasn't their custom, that wasn't their cultural background, to become circumcised, In a way, it was placing the burden and the onus of salvation on these individuals and how they were responding to the law of God, which in in very simple terms basically means that when they were telling these Gentiles what they had to do to be Christians, that was saying that you are, in a sense, saving yourself by you obeying this law. If you refuse to do so, then... That, that's, that's at cost, that's, a, that's jeopardizing your own salvation, which Paul is going to say is just really, really problematic way of looking at the gospel and the finished work that we have in Jesus. So Paul starts off this passage by saying, I'm not seeking the approval of men, which is a really interesting way to kind of come out of the gate because um, many of the critics of Paul's teachings in this area were essentially saying what kind of makes sense logically. They were like, this guy's saying that you're not supposed to get circumcised. He's just, just taking the easy way out. I mean, look, look, Paul, nobody wants to get circumcised. But if you want to follow Jesus, man up and do your thing. Like that, that was kind of their thing. They're like, you're just trying to please other people. Your, your, your beliefs are not rooted in anything true. You're just, you're just trying to give them a softer, you know, nicer gospel. It's a little more palatable. And, and that's your biggest problem, Paul. And so Paul's like, look, I am not doing these things just to please men, but rather I am doing it because Christ has given me this message and I'm compelled to speak it. Now, this kind of gets us into the background of Paul. And if you don't know the story of Paul, it's a very interesting one. And it's, it's very significant to really all of his writings in the New Testament. We can see this story kind of unfold in the book of Acts in chapter nine. But prior to Paul becoming a Christian, he still had a very strong reputation amongst the believers, but it was not a positive one. It was, in fact, a very negative one because he was working with the Jewish religious leaders in ways of persecuting the Christians who were there. So we believe that Paul was actually very involved in the act of arresting and, 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 and capturing and possibly even the, the murder of an execution of Christians. And so he was on the very, very opposite end of things when it came to like faith in Christ. And, and the famous story of his conversion was that he was, you know, on the road to Damascus, ready to meet with some people, probably talking about how to kill Christians the coolest way possible. And all of a sudden he's stopped and blinded by this incredible light that really only he can see. It knocks him off his horse or donkey or whatever they were riding back then. I'm not sure. Um, 
he falls to the ground and, and he hears not even the voice of an angel, but he hears the voice of Jesus himself. And Jesus speaks to him and says, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus and, and Paul have this, have this dialogue and Paul essentially is blinded. He can't see for a few days. He's commanded to go into the town that he was going and to speak to a disciple that Jesus then spoke to to prepare for the arrival of Paul. They met Paul um, through this experience became converted to a Christian. And not just that, but he was commissioned by Jesus to completely do the opposite of what he was doing. You've been persecuting. You've been doing acts of violence against my people. Now you're going to be a great source of life and richness and health to my church rather than the damage and the destruction that you were doing before. I think it's an incredible story because Jesus literally just said, no, you're mine now. You're on my team. You don't get to play for the other side anymore. Now I'm saving you and I'm going to bring you into this beautiful thing and I'm going to change your heart. And, and Paul became one of the most significant like figures and most important figures, his writings to the history of the Christian church. It's just a beautiful story of Jesus' faithfulness. The important thing about that story, though, was that Jesus himself had met Paul where he was on that road. Many, many leaders, many people in the church in this time were coming to faith. The, 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 the Christian faith was, was, was growing at an incredible rate because of the faithfulness of the disciples and, of course, the faithfulness of Jesus. But Paul had not been converted by some dude who was just chatting with him or even through walking by a temple and hearing someone preaching. He was spoken to by Jesus himself, which was very, very significant. And when I said before that this word apostle is going to mean something, this is when it comes into significance. Um, I remember kind of not really being sure like the difference between like the words apostle and disciple. They sound very similar. Sometimes in the scriptures, it looks like they're used almost interchangeably. Um, they are very different though. A disciple is really just a student. You can be a disciple of anyone. I can be a disciple of Jesus, but also be a disciple to uh, a math professor or something like that. To be an apostle means that you were specifically sent out, that you were commissioned by an authority and sent out for a purpose. And in the early church, apostle was almost like this office of authority. If you were an apostle, it meant that you weren't just kind of down the line of believers, but that you were spoken to, ministered to, and officially sent out by Jesus himself. And so the apostles who were recognized at this time were pretty much the original 12 disciples minus Judas. And so Paul, being kind of thrown into the fold at the last second as this one who experienced this miracle where Jesus himself had spoken to him and sent him to be a minister of the word, is a really big deal. It means that Paul is now given the same authority and the same weight to his teachings as the rest of the disciples, because he was close to the source of our faith, which of course is Jesus. So 
when Paul was, was speaking to the church at Galatia, it almost kind of looks like he's flexing on him. He's like, look, I don't know if you guys got any apostles over there, but I'm an apostle. Like, it wasn't really like that. It was more so saying, look, we are Christians. We are, we are, we are forced to root ourselves first and foremost in Christ, which means that we have to honor and respect that which is closest to Christ, which is why the apostle is important. So for him to say, I'm an apostle was not a way of bragging. It was a way of saying, look, I didn't hear this from some dude who was throwing around philosophy books and said, circumcision's dumb. Let's not do that anymore. I'm, I am literally sent out from Jesus and I'm telling you what I know to be true. And, and throughout the book, he, he doesn't just use his claim to apostleship as the reason why he wants to change this paradigm idea of circumcision. He also uses lots of reasons that can be found in the Old Testament to kind of show that he's not introducing some new idea into the scope of scripture. He's showing how Jesus has fulfilled this and we can see this clearly. And now, you know, a, a couple hundred guys can be a little bit happier now. Um, and so Paul's defense here is not of his own importance or significance, but it's a reminder that Christ is and must be the anchor to our faith, to our beliefs, to our practices, to everything we do and believe must be centered wholly in Jesus, which is a really a wonderful, beautiful thing that we can see from this passage, that Paul is encouraging this church to really root and anchor themselves in something trustworthy. And the height and greatness of trustworthiness can be found in Christ himself. So that is the background. <laughs> That's almost like the world's longest introduction, but I promise the rest of it, I, I'm, I'm going to try and, we're, we're not going to be here all night is what I'm saying. So you look at this and you see Paul was encouraging the church of Galatia to root themselves, to center themselves wholly in Jesus. And this was written down. This was written down a couple thousand years ago. This is a hopeful thing. Paul, he wrote a bunch of letters. He said the same thing. He's always rooting yourself, anchoring yourself, making your foundation to be Jesus. If I am only reading the Bible, then I'm thinking to myself, the Christian church must be incredible. Just a monolith of success, health, spirituality, Christ-centeredness, never a flaw, never a blemish, should be fine. But I think we all know that's not the case. And now we're compelled to ask ourselves why. The way that I'm seeing this and the way that I want to present it to all of you today is that the church is constantly in need of like recalibration. Like I, I remember reading this story about um, this horrible disaster that had happened when these two naval ships had collided and I think a couple hundred people drowned. There was uh, all this uh, cargo that was lost. It was just a monumental disaster. And the whole reason for it was that one of the ship's compass was like un or decalibrated, just like, like, like barely a little bit off of center. 
And because of that, their direction was thrown off in a way that it led to disaster. And so I see the Christian church and I see every Christian breathing person as in constant need of recalibration because losing sight of the center, I think, can lead to disaster. Maybe not in the deaths of hundreds, but um, I mean, if we look at history, sometimes the deaths of a lot more than that. We know that looking through church history, we see a number of issues and I I don't want to rail and I don't want to like, um, almost create this like faux, like self-righteousness, like, huh, good thing we're not killing people anymore, right? But it is worth acknowledging that there have been just so many ways in which the Christian church has, has fallen away from its responsibility to be centered in Christ, in beliefs, and in our expression of that. I don't think it's a controversial thing to say that, uh, you know, Christianity's involvement with things like slavery, things like the Crusades, things like, you know, these, these widespread public executions and stuff. That's, that's a pretty popular thing to say, I would say. We even have more modern injustices. Well, there's plenty of opportunities of times when we have turned a blind eye to blatant injustice. There are times when we have stood side to side with, uh, with corrupt governments. There are times when we have abandoned central and fundamental elements of our faith. Times when we have prayed on the poor, not prayed with an A, prayed with an E. We have, we have hurt the poor, devoured the poor. The list goes on and on. I read an article from The Guardian a few days ago. It uh, was in, from 2016, but, you know, not very long ago, considering what the topic was. And it was basically representing the, uh, the picture of modern Christianity in America. And it was, like, very interesting because it was clearly from an outsider's perspective, but it was also just, like, really, really discouraging. It basically made the argument that because the roots of 17th and 18th century Christianity, where we came from Europe, or at least the, the, the Christianity that we kind of have inherited now came from Europe, um, because it was so guided and driven by these motivators that often weren't really doctrinal at all, what happened is when we got here and when Christianity kind of dispersed and diluted across the culture from every side of every spectrum you can imagine, Christianity became just something that could fit with everything. The the article went as far as to call it market-driven. You could be anything and also a Christian. To be a Christian didn't really mean that your life and motivations and actions were rooted and centered in Christ. It meant that there was something about Christianity that was cool, and you just took it and absorbed the titles. And entire churches have been founded on this idea. Christianity became the black pants of the religion. It just goes with everything. It just never, never clashes. So what do we do as a church to recalibrate ourselves to Jesus? Or even what should we as individuals be doing to recalibrate ourselves? I have a few points for this. First, we have to deeply know our own personal and cultural biases. We have to deeply know our own personal and cultural biases. 
When we look at the New Testament, even I'd say specifically in the book of Galatians, you can see that the, the, the early churches were facing issues during Paul's time, largely due to cultural blind spots that they were integrating into the Christian faith. A lot, I'd say sometimes this was conscious, but a lot of times they were just seeking to fill in the gaps of things they didn't understand. And so we, we see like the, the, the church in Colossians, which is, you know, another book of the Bible, struggle with Gnosticism, this weird view that kind of distorts the nature of Jesus and encourages them to deny Jesus' divinity. And it also follows this like weird legalistic lifestyle. It was very cultural to them. It was commonplace. That's what they believed before Jesus came. The churches in Corinth, uh, you could probably fill a bigger book with all of the things the churches in Corinth were struggling with, but constant division, um, the influence of Greek philosophy and also pagan worship and, and just loaded with sexual immorality. These were cultural sins. These were things they already brought with them in their pockets to their faith. And they just didn't realize until they'd been exhorted and kind of like rebuked by a spiritual leader that, Hey, you, this, these are not compatible. This does not fit together. Even here in the book of Galatians, Paul's addressing a church that is replacing a fundamental doctrine of Christianity, which is salvation by faith alone, a fundamental Christian belief. And they're swapping it with an Old Testament misunderstanding of the law. Why? Because it, it makes sense for them. It, it was cultural for them. And so it's very important for us to think of these things because, again, like, like the power of culture is so potent and so significant. A lot of these blind spots are, occurred for them in ways they probably did not understand, and they occur for us in ways that we would not understand unless we were to finally comb through and examine our hearts, actions, motivations, and beliefs to see, okay, how much of this is really anchored in Christ? And how much of this have I just inherited from living in a world that is not following Jesus? I can almost guarantee you, 200 years ago, a Christian dude who owned slaves was not doing it because in a vacuum, he pulled out his Bible, searched through every page of it, and thought to himself, there is not a more good and virtuous thing than to own a slave. I guarantee you that never happened. What happened was they entered into a cultural context where it was not just acceptable, it was profitable for them. And then over time, they started to take scriptures and bend and twist and, and, and kind of maneuver them around until it finally fit where I was already coming from. Look at that. The Christians are reinforcing such a comfortable way for me to live. That was their lifestyle, and that is what threatens us as well. And we have to be careful with that because these things are dangerous. Second point. The first one was we have to know deeply our personal and cultural biases. Second one is we have to live deeply in the scriptures. We have to live deeply in the scriptures. Paul's initial argument for his critics in Galatia was simple. I have received the authority to speak from Jesus Christ himself because he taught them to me. Paul was always returning back to the authority, not that he possessed, but to the authority of Jesus Christ. Because if we are truly his, his 
uh, children, truly Jesus' servants, then we will adhere our like submission fully and foremost to him first. The good thing for us is that we don't have to uh, figure out who's an apostle in this day and age because that was, you know, really for that time, specifically for those people who had interacted with Jesus, aside from Paul, of course, which makes him the interesting exception. But what we have in the word of God is established in a way that we can adhere to it as the true essence of Jesus himself. What we have in the word of God is literally that. It is the word of God and it is the substance of God. And it contains the stories and the narrative of the past, present, and future of all of creation, of all of life that we could experience is contained within that. Now, I mean, there's, there's a lot to be said about the statement that I just made. I, I, I think that there are some people who would like try to textbook eyes certain passages of scripture, which I think is irresponsible. But ultimately what we have in the Bible is the full narrative of creation. It says everything from the creation to the consummation and return of Jesus. And that is something we should live in. When we live in the Bible, we are not just pinching tiny pieces of verses and chapters to maximize the comfort of the ways that we are already living or that we find preferable to live. We are allowing the Bible to live and breathe within itself. So we see the Bible as a living thing. We don't have to pick little hairs and and fingernails and things from the Bible to kind of form this little collage of what fits for us because that's been done before. It's a devastating result. Just let the Bible be. Let it breathe from Genesis to Revelation. Let it exist in its own entirety. What we find in the Bible is the full story, is the beauty and like magnificence of creation. And then we see the the broken despair of the fall away from that and the corruption that ensued. And then we see just the establishment of Israel and all these beautiful covenants that keep getting broken, never by God, but always by man. And this cycle of like failure, affliction, repentance, redemption, failure, affliction, like just this constant cycle of like just banana slipping of, of Israel. All to come down to Jesus, life, death, resurrection, completion of everything, satisfaction of the law, salvation of all who are called to him. And then the promise that we are still waiting on, the promise of eternity, the promise of life, the promise of a perfected world and every injustice made just, everything ungood made good, everything unbeautiful made beautiful again. That is the story that we can find in scripture. And that is the story that is neglected when we are, 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 are allowing this like integration of cultural things to, to devastate us. At times, what we're what I just kind of like went through with that little like boom 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 point by point thing. That's the good news. The good news of of the promise of Jesus to save us and to fulfill things. The good news of Jesus dying for our sins and, and giving us new life to have. And the, our third point, our final point, is that we have to live in that good news. We have to live and and, and immerse ourselves in that good news. A man who participates in the act of slavery is rejecting the good news 
of loving your neighbor, that, that, that people are worthy of love from, from other people. That's good news. When you have a slave, you're rejecting that. A Catholic bishop who covers up the abuse of children is rejecting the good news of justice for those who are doing evil, especially to those who can't defend themselves. That's afflicting and, that, and, that's, and that's hurting and distorting the good news. Someone who mangles and manipulates the Bible to fit into popular cultural standards or even new modern views on sexuality is rejecting the good news that God has spoken good things and his design for creation and for life are good. That he is a good God and what he's created is good. Someone who preaches a gospel of prosperity and wealth is rejecting the good news that Christ is with us in our suffering, in our time of need. Just as he also suffered, suffering is not an affliction that is un, unbeneficial for his people. A gospel that preaches that you must have prosperity and wealth is a gospel that is robbing you of the good news of how close Christ is and how purposeful suffering can be. And even on the flip side, someone who uh, gathers all of these accusations and speaks harsh slanders against the church left and right and is only, only, only so focused on every blemish and mark and unclean thing on the church that there's never a good thing to be said. They are rejecting the good news. No, the great news that the church is the bride of Christ. And Jesus has promised to love the church deeply and richly forever and ever until he were to take them home. I feel like that's an important thing to say because in in a time where I feel like our our culture is being very like critical of of Christianity and and maybe in some ways that are good and other ways not so much, it's a dangerous temptation for us as Christians to just be like, you know what, church, bunch of bums. Church, bunch of bums, bunch of mooks, bunch of silly, silly, silly people making mistakes, all that. We have to remember, we have to remember that the church is the bride of Christ. We, we have to. I, I was actually talking to my buddy Thomas a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about this very thing. And Thomas said, you know, he's a married dude. That'll make sense in a second. He said, if someone told me, Thomas, I think you're a super, super cool dude, but your wife, I can't stand her. Can't be around her. He was like, if someone said that to me, we can't be friends. Like, we, we, we can't be cool with each other because this is my wife. Like, it's, it's not even that Thomas is unaware of, of the flaws and imperfections of his wife just as any person is to bear, but it's, I love her a lot. I love her with everything that I have. And how dare you say something about her like that? That is like, I think, a very like pressing and and honestly a beautiful allegory of how Jesus could treat not just the church, but us. We believe in him. We're the church. That means that when we screw up and people are talking smack about us behind our backs, that's Jesus' response. He says, don't you talk about them. I love that person. That's a beautiful thing. We have to remember that. All of this, this beautiful, beautiful good news is something that we will close on.
And I promise there's no more secret compartments to the sermon. It's closing soon. The good news that the Son of God has entered into a world of violence and injustice and corruption and just general ugliness, right? But Jesus entered into this world with the promise that any one of these violent, unjust, corrupt, ugly people could just lay their life down to him and he would love them eternally and he would love them perfectly. And that that person, that ugly, corrupt, everything terrible person will be made new just like everything else that we can see before us will be made new. That is beautiful, beautiful news. And we know this because in, Jesus, in, in Paul's first words to the Galatians, and I'll, I'm going to warn you guys, Paul's going to get, Paul's pulling the gloves off. He's about to pull the gloves off with the Galatians. He will. But when he opens this letter to them, what he says is grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. As I close, um, like I mentioned before, this like liturgy thing, this rhythm of how we come to God in this, in this time of gathering for worship. We started with adoration. I just preached, which I guess would be proclamation. I'm not sure. Um, right now we're gonna respond with confession. So we're going to kind of let the words of the past, however long, just kind of interact and engage and speak to us, speak to our hearts, listen to yourself, and then bring that before God, and we'll have a time of confession. How that's going to happen is I'm going to pray for a bit, and then we're going to leave two minutes of silence for you guys to just do your own thing, and then, uh, and then I'll bring us back after that's up. So let's do it. Dear Lord, I thank you for... Uh, I thank you for the good news that you promised to us. I thank you for, um, man, I I thank you that you do not turn away from those who are humbly calling to you. Um, God, maybe it's that humility. Maybe it's that true sense of brokenness and dependence that is keeping some of us from actually calling out to you, Lord. Um, I pray that we would all just be able to experience the beauty and just the, the wonder of actually being your children. That, that is a wonder that we can carry from day to day that can, that can carry us through so many pains of life, just knowing that we are one with a God who loves us and who has given himself for us. So Lord, bring out everything that needs to come out from us during this time of confession. I recognize even I myself, especially I myself, am in need of confession for times that I am not leaning on you for times that I am not anchoring myself in you, uh, sometimes actively going against you. I pray that all of us would have a time of confession where you would meet us, where you would show us your grace. Um, I pray this in your name.